Hello and welcome to Theology Matters. This is Pastor John Clark. And this month and over the course of the next couple of months, we want to consider false gospel cliches uh, that are prevalent in our day. In fact, to begin, I want to start with a story because in May 2016, there was a statistical study performed by Johns Hopkins patient safety experts, and they actually found that the third leading cause of death in the United States is due to preventable medical error. It only follows heart disease and cancer. And they calculated that more than 250,000 deaths occur per year in hospitals that are actually caused by medical staff who have the patient's best interest and health in mind. And so although no one would question the staff's sincerity or the desire to help people, they were actually contributing to death in the hospital uh, stays for these people. And so the gospel cliches that we're going to look at are, I think, much the same way. They're they're given by well-meaning uh, and sincere believers who desire to be evangelistic in their approach with the gospel, but unfortunately, they muddy the waters with some of these unclear gospel responses. Um, and so, but but in the case of the hospital, uh, people are just losing their physical life. But in the case of these false gospel cliches, many people uh, are not saved. And because they're not trusting in the finished work of Christ, they're distracted by some of these other uh, false response cliches. And, and so it's a very prevalent issue in our day. I'm actually a very prolific collector of tracks and and uh, with many of the tracks I, I typically uh, just flip to the back uh, just to see what the punchline is so to speak and uh, you know there's one track that I have that I find quite interesting because it's a very popular track and I'll be talking about it later uh, this month and that is the track uh, This Was Your Life by Jack Tri- Jack Chick and um, in this chat, in this tract, he gives no less than eight different responses to the question, what must I do to be saved? One of those responses is to repent of your sins and be willing to turn from sin. The second response is to surrender your life to Christ. The third response is to acknowledge that he died for your sins. The fourth response is to receive him as your savior. The fifth response is to pray the following prayer. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I repent of my sins and I acknowledge Jesus Christ as my Lord and personal Savior. Number six, invite Jesus into your heart to become your personal Savior. Number seven, admit you are a sinner. And number eight, believe that Jesus Christ died for you, was buried, and rose from the dead. And so some of you might be listening say, might say, well, what's wrong with any of those? What's wrong with any of those? Um, and what we're going to find is that much of what he shared there is is just not biblical. You could not point to a Bible verse um, to encourage somebody to to teach somebody else how to be saved based on those responses. And so, what we want to do is really just carefully look at some of these cliches, especially some of the more popular ones in our day, um, and just discuss and look at whether or not these are biblical. And the first one we want to do that with is what's become known as the sinner's prayer. And so in this set, in this session, we want to just look quickly at the origin of the sinner's prayer and where did it come from. And um, I want to read an opening quote from a gentleman by the name of Paul Chitwood who wrote uh, his PhD dissertation on the origin of the sinner's prayer. He, he wrote this, 
And I think this is fascinating to, to understand based on this man's research. He says this, what many people fail to realize is that although the sinner's prayer is widely used and enormously popular today, no variation of it is found in the Bible. In addition to the sinner's prayer not occurring in the Bible, it is also absent from the pages of church history. We fail to see it even through the rise of revivalism and mass evangelism of the 18th and 19th centuries. In fact, research suggests that leading lost persons in praying the sinner's prayer is a relatively new method in evangelism. My studies have revealed no occurrence of the sinner's prayer before the 20th century. The routine use of a model prayer for salvation of any form is also absent before the 20th century. Now, those are some pretty big claims as it relates to the sinner's prayer. And just to let you know what Chitwood's research was, he actually contacted the American Track Society, ATS, uh, which is one of the largest track publishers in the world and the oldest um, that's still in existence because it was established in 1825. And uh, what he did is he actually took a trip to their headquarters in Garland, Texas, where he spent several hours over a two-day period reviewing all of the archived tracks dating back to the beginning of the 19th century, specifically looking to see if any of these tracks included a sinner's prayer. And what he found... They weren't included. The sinner's prayer was not included in any of the tracks until he got into the 20th century. Now, if this is true and somebody has to say a prayer to be saved, number one, did did anyone ever get saved before the 20th century? Um, and number two, did the biblical authors miss the, the key to salvation? And so um, what we see is that this whole development was a semi-recent development just within the last um, century or so. And, you know, what's ironic today is that this is this response has really taken the evangelical world by storm. In fact, many people today would not close an evangelistic service without offering a version of the sinner's prayer for somebody to repeat for fear that if they didn't, somebody who wanted to be saved couldn't get saved by simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work um, from their seat. In fact, I recently I had a, a couple, uh, some friends of mine, who were leading uh, a Bible study during a, a an outreach campaign at their church. It was a vacation Bible school, but they were they were stuck with the the high school kids. Uh, the little kids had a bunch of stuff, and they said, "Well, hey, you guys just do something with the high school kids." And so they said, "Well, let's go through John three sixteen with them, and let's explain." how one can be saved, how one can have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And so they went through and shared the gospel with them. And um, there were nine kids in the class and all nine kids, when given an opportunity to express what does God require somebody to go to heaven, all nine of them expressed some level of works in their answers. People were saying, well, you've got to be baptized. And people were saying, you've got to keep the Ten Commandments. And somebody, you know, basically said, you, you've got to sin less and these types of things. And, um, you know, after my friends were able to share the gospel with them and show that it's not about how, how good you are, but it's about the effectiveness of the work of Jesus Christ. It's not about you trying to, to be better or to outdo your bad works, but to recognize that our sin incurred a penalty 
and that Jesus came to pay that penalty on our behalf and to provide a righteousness equal to God's that we did not possess, nor could we ever possess on our own. They shared this message clearly. And at the end of the class, they asked the young people, does this make sense? Do you have any questions? They said, no, it makes complete sense. We've never heard it this way before. These were teenagers who had grown up in church. And my friend said, so let me ask you again, what does God require of somebody to go to heaven? And they said, you simply have to put your faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work alone. And they're very clear. And so my friends left the classroom that night. They caught the pastor uh, in the hallway and they said, pastor, we've got great news. These nine kids in our, in our class this evening understood the gospel for the first time and they put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the pastor said, that's great news. Did you lead them in the sinner's prayer? And my friend said, maybe you didn't hear us, pastor. These nine kids understood, understood that Jesus died for their sins and put their faith in him alone for salvation. And they don't need to pray a prayer. They need to believe that personally. And the pastor stormed off red faced and has been angry with this couple since that time. And uh, it's caused a, a breach of fellowship there over the fact that they just simply shared the gospel, encouraged the youth to put their faith in Christ and his finished work, and then would not lead them uh, to to repeat a sinner's prayer. Now, um, one of the things that we learn about their sinner's prayer, although it didn't show up uh, in tracks until the 20th century, we do want to know kind of, or at least look at where it came from. And um, many believe that the practice developed as a tag-along to the altar call, uh, which developed in the 18th and 19th centuries. And other early names uh, for for this altar call was the anxious seat or the mourner's bench. And um, just as a a quote from history, uh, the theology of this mourner's bench was pretty simple. Um, They felt like when you came up there, you were in sacred time, in a sacred space, this is where God would meet you. It was a, a bench or an area set aside at the front of the church after an evangelistic meeting that people would normally come up there uh, initially to to wait for the pastor, the speaker, to to be able to ask questions or to um, to to discuss what he had taught in more detail. That's what it was initially used for, but then it be it started to almost have a spiritual or mystical. Uh, sense that it was this this special uh, anointed place where God would meet with you. It's where some one writer wrote, it's where heaven came to earth and earth goes to heaven at the same time. Um, and so it was one of these places where if people were moved by the message, they would begin to move up to the front. You would just literally sit on this bench or kneel in the mourner's bench and you would wait for an experience or a visitation, so to speak. And so over time, it it developed where people would sit in the mourner's bench. And then in order to, quote unquote, uh, close the deal or to make sure that somebody had made a decision um, for Jesus Christ, and that's how they would word it, made it, make a decision for Jesus Christ, then they would lead somebody or have them repeat after them. A prayer. And let me read another quote from, from Chitwood's dissertation. He says, The development of the altar call is an important factor in tracing the origin of the sinner's prayer for at least two reasons. 
First, the altar call represents a further shift in the theology of evangelism. Second, the altar call represents a new methodology in evangelism. With the rise of the altar call, evangelistic preaching often became an appeal to sinners to publicly respond to the invitation to accept Christ rather than an appeal for sinners to make their peace privately with God by believing the gospel. Thus, the altar call is one of the important forerunners to the sinner's prayer. And so it became kind of a tag along to this altar call. The altar call was developed from this mourner's bench. And you can see how one small step led to another small step that led to another small step. And hence, now we have this explosion of the use of the sinner's prayer. And as we're going to see in in future lessons, the sinner's prayer is not even biblical. You can't even find uh, a biblical passage that would uh, not only give us an example of somebody else leading somebody in a prayer, but neither can you find a passage of Paul or one of the apostles instructing uh, believers to lead others in a sinner's prayer. The exhortation is always to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We're, we're trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So the question becomes, how did the, the sinner's prayer expand so rapidly? How did it how did it start in evangelistic meetings and then spread so rapidly? Well, we're going to look at that in our next time together. Thank you again for joining us for Theology Matters.